Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John McMahon, and I'm joined by my valuable co-host, John Kaplan. Good morning, Cap. Hey, buddy. How are you? Doing great. How about you? Fantastic. You sure? Yeah, I'm doing great, buddy. All right. Love that. Cap, today our special guest is Doug May, who is currently the chief of staff to the CRO at Datadog. Doug started his career as an account executive at BBN and Cisco before moving into sales leadership as a regional VP at Mira Image. Remember, Jim Vetta was at Mira Image, right? Yeah. Then as director of Eastern Sales at Indeca, where Chris Reisig was, and then as VP of Sales at Carbon Black. After Carbon Black, Doug was the VP Worldwide Sales at ChoiceStream before moving to BMC Software as a leader of the Business Value Consulting Group. That's where I met Doug. And this is where we want to focus the discussion with Doug today. After BMC, Doug spent seven years as the VP of Global Field Specialization, which included the Business Value Consulting Group. And that extended his knowledge and expertise in driving business value. So after that, or Splunk, after Splunk, Doug spent three and a half years at Databricks, where he was the VP of Global Value Acceleration. And today we find Doug as a CRO to the Chief of Staff at Datadog. Hey, welcome, Doug May. How are you? Oh, man, I'm doing great, John. So good to see you. It's been a while. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's been, it has been a while. You too, John. See you again, Doug. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. You guys know each other also, right? We do. We do. Great to see you again. Yeah, I think I can't count how many times I've seen you work your magic down the aisles of a big room of sales leaders, uh, you know, telling your stories and watching them sit on the edge of their seat. It's truly amazing to uh, to see. Thanks, buddy. And how all of this stuff still applies today. It doesn't matter when when or how we've been doing this, right? Over decades, it, Amen. Uh, this stuff works. You've been, you know, leading and coaching, you know, salespeople on how to solve business problems, quantify customer value, present with business cases for like 15 years. So let's start by talking about the why, you know, why quantifying value, you know, that a customer is going to receive from your solution can be so important to the success of a salesperson. Well, I can tell you the first thing it's not, it's not because your manager told you to do it. <laughs> right. Right. How many checkbox activities have we seen people go through and not really understand the real why? When I talk to sellers, when I talk to sales leaders about this, it starts first with what the data says. You know, when I was at Splunk, we built a business value program from scratch, super technical product. But we needed to talk to executives when they engaged our team couple of magical things happened. Number one, the average deal size increased mm-hmm. two times. We documented this over, over thousands of business cases <clears throat> over the years. It was, it was truly remarkable. A second thing happened at Splunk. The sales cycles were about 50% faster. John, you taught me this a long time ago. Slow down to speed up. Right. Especially when in the you- front part of the sales process, which we'll probably dig into more, but that's where it's really important. Absolutely. So we found that we could avoid those obstacles in the selling at the end of the process when we did the BVA. Now take that experience as it is, and you might say, okay, that was Splunk, that was one company, but I went to Databricks and I went and did the same thing again. We have the same results, but then an interesting thing also popped up. It changed our win rate. Mm. And I'm not talking about 50% higher. I'm talking about 5.8 times higher. Our win rate was when we engaged with the business value consultant. That's to quantify the results. And, and what made it even more compelling 
is that we built a self-service value platform that actually mimicked the interview you'd conduct with a value consultant. And we put it in the hands of all of our sellers. And when they used this platform, their win rate was about 5.5 times higher. So it proved to us that this is, you know, focusing on business value in the sales cycle is a game changer. So when I talk about the why, I try to hit them right in the pocketbook. So Doug, when you, can we um, unpack some of that stuff? So when you talked about, you put the interview with the customer in the hands of the sales people, what was that, a video or how, how did you do that? Well, we basically mimicked the interview. If you think about um, back in the day, TurboTax was a big innovation back in the 90s, right? And they came up with this thing called the interview. And it would ask you really simple questions. Did you buy a house this year? And you would answer yes or no. I didn't have to know the IRS tax code. I didn't need to know, you know, what form I needed to be on. I didn't need to know anything. I answered the question and I could move on. If you're trying to get anything done with your sales team, you know, so many things on the shoulders of a sales rep, when you can make the value conversation easier, uh, and which is what we sought to do with our self-service tools, um, we actually mimic that conversation. And you could ask a very simple question at Databricks. The first question is, what cloud are you running on? Simple question. If I'm a rep and I can't answer that, we should just go home. <laughs> but uh, but it, it's you start with the simple things, give them some confidence, and then you guide them throughout the process, just now, like lo- a value consultant does. Logically, a lot of people might say, well, wait a second, Doug, how does it decrease sales cycles when I got to slow down in the beginning of the process to gather all this information, to build all this, you know, a business value assessment. I have to build a business case. How is that actually possible to slow down my sales process? Well, you slow it down because you're doing great discovery. You're uncovering these uh, business problems tied to technical challenges. And then the speed up occurs when it goes time to meet the economic buyer. Yeah. I can tell you countless stories of, of salespeople who upon my request to assist them said, no, I'm all set. One, one rep in particular, he's a CRO now, his name's Andy Hershey. He was certain that he was going to close his deal at the Navy Federal Credit Union without the business case. So he got to the end of the sales process. It was the last day of the quarter. He went on site with his champion. They met the CIO. What do you think the CIO asked for? A business case. Exactly. Where's my business case? He and the champion looked at each other shook their heads. They got the deal next quarter because we did the business case. That's the kind of slowdown you want to avoid as a seller. The process the customer has typically requires some form of financial justification. And if you can't, if you can't provide it, you're going to leave it up to two other people. The customer has to do it on their own or your competitor is going to do it and box you out. Right. Exactly. Now, what about in this tough economic conditions, you see a lot of CEOs and CFOs are trying to cut costs. And you see a lot of really big deals that have to go through the CFO. And I got to imagine that you're seeing the same thing. Once it gets up to that CFO, if you don't have a business case that shows why this customer should buy and the financial value that it brings, then you're just not going to get the deal. Completely right. CFOs have their hands in it a lot more than they ever have before. This is where aligning what you do to the important strategy and priorities of the company become critical. Uh, I remember I met Dan Brennan, the CFO of Boston Scientific a while back, and I asked him a simple question. Hey, how do you prioritize investments? And he said it was really simple. You know, he says we have five strategic priorities. If it doesn't align with one of those, we throw it out. Mm. And if it does, the net, the best net present value wins. And so I thought like, that was really telling. So you got to have the story to talk to the CFO. You got to have the language to talk to the CFO. And if you don't quantify the benefit of your solution over the current state for the customer, then you can't quantify the return on investment and you can't quantify the net present value of that investment. 
Right. So now we're moving like towards we talked a little bit about the why. And you can also really distinguish yourself as a salesperson when you do that. Like you said, you know, boxing it out. Um, I think Johnny wants to he wants to make a comment. Yeah. Let me just wrap some of the uh, some of the discussion, which I think is very powerful. So, you know, we're wrapping up the why here. Um, what I'm hearing is akin to what we call the seller deficit disorder is that when you show up to a buyer today or this, it's as old as dirt, they they do not believe that you understand their business and they do not believe that you listen to them very well. And I found that, you know, one of the number one whys to do uh, business value and just financial justification is, is that you demonstrate really it's kind of like overcoming the seller deficit disorder. You know, you demonstrate that you do understand their business because the series of questions that you are asking is linking the technical problems to to the business. And the other thing I was thinking about, Johnny, was, you know, in your book, Qualified Sales Leader, you're you're constantly talking about, you know, how to rise above the noise and attaching yourself to the biggest business issue facing the customer. And we all the listeners should write that down because it's something, you know, what's the biggest business issue facing the customer? If you got a deal right now and you can't answer that, if it comes back as a technical issue or a technical capability, it's not that that's bad. It's just what is the business impact, uh, the business issue impact? And then the last thing I wanted to say is, as we continue to go through today, as a listener, I want you to think about is uh, this is one of the number one ways that you can differentiate yourself. So there's a saying that says how you sell, how you sell can be sometimes just as important as what you sell. So listen up as we continue to go through today and, and uh, as we move into the how. Yeah, well, right now we're going to do let's do the what. Right. So Doug yeah. started with one of the what's, which is, you know, with this conversation with the CEO of Boston Scientific, you know, you have to align to the customer's goals and strategies. But what are some of the other what's that we should be considering, Doug? Major actions that go into selling business value is what I'm really looking for. Yeah, when I think about it, it really begins and ends with discovery. So John Kaplan, you just said it, right? I have to understand the 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 business and the customer's goals and strategy. And then I need to ask really good questions, differentiate myself. And then I think it was Dick Thomas who called it out on your podcast, you know, the gold miner discovery. You have to keep swinging the pick until you hit the gold. Right. And so discovery doesn't stop when the customer says, um, yeah, we have an APM project or we have a data lake project. You know, when that happens, the salesperson gets the happy years because they've been taught to go find projects. Right. Go find, you know, go take our product, which we've been taught to go push and sell. And, um, and it, it just becomes, you know, they, they start heading down that path rather than keep swinging that ax. Well, why do you have an APM project? Who sponsored that project? What, what, you know, what business problem does that solve? Who cares? And when you keep digging and digging and digging, eventually you'll find it. And when you find it, you can link the capabilities of your solution, the challenges to the challenges the customer has, and then ultimately to that big thing that the CFO or CEO care about. Yeah. Let's back up a little bit. How much homework do I need to do before I enter the account to come in with some sort of compelling viewpoint on their use case that I typically sell to? So basically, before I start discovery live with the customer, how much homework should I gather on the account? There's a whole bunch of things available to us today that weren't available when I started my career. I, re <laughs> yeah. I remember I had a three ring binder of a, a D and B report, which told yes. me the industry and the number of employees and the, and the location of the business. And that was about all I had. Nowadays, the richness of information that a seller can use pre discovery pre ever before ever meeting a customer is so powerful. Um, I think if you're really good at this, it takes you less than an hour. But you got to get good. You got to practice. So if you haven't done it before, it's going to take you a couple of hours. But if the company's public, they've got the annual report, you should read it. Listen to the earnings announcements. Read the chairman's letter. 
oftentimes right in here is when they start talking about what the strategic initiatives are for the company, where they're going to, the big projects are, which as we all know, like big problems make big projects and they're followed with big dollars. And that's what we look for as sellers. Most public companies also hold investor days. They post the deck on online. You can get the information there. You can search for the executives online. They're typically doing interviews. Listen to those interviews, pull out the nuggets so that when you're reaching out into the company to even prospect, you come with a very specific message. Now, prospecting, excuse me, prospecting is, is good to, to have a point of view. You need to prove that you've done your homework because customers don't really have the time to teach you their business. I remember years and years ago, I actually had a customer tell me that because I asked the first question. So, you know, tell me what business are you in? And, you know, how do you use technology to support the business? And he literally said, I don't have time for you. Yeah, exactly. But that's also why when you do your homework and come in with a compelling viewpoint, even if your compelling viewpoint might be off a little bit, you're in the meat of a discussion. They're telling you where you're right and where you're wrong. And that allows you to correct your your compelling viewpoint and aim it towards, like you said, towards their, you know, strategic goals and initiatives. Yeah. You called out the the point of view. You know, you got to bring that point of view to the customer. You got to bring it to them before you've ever met them. And if you've done that, you're absolutely right. You'll, you'll reformat it, you'll repoint it and uh, it becomes really powerful. And then it's jointly owned as well. Exactly. Yeah. I think the, um, uh, the what just at the highest level, if you think about a bullseye, I think this is where reps kind of get it wrong as they, you know, you think about the outer layers of the bullseye working yourself to the inner layer. Um, minimally, you should understand what's going on in their industry. If I know nothing about this company, if I know what's going on in their industry, I can begin to ask questions about how industry pressures are affecting that company. That's a, that's a good preparation area. Um, that's a great point, actually, John, because, you know, what I laid out there was all the nice information on the silver platter that a publicly yeah. traded company provides to the seller. Yeah. If I'm private and I'm a seller trying to go after that private company, what do I look for? And industry trends, I got to look at the competitors. What are they talking about? What are yeah. they doing? And when I come in and I start asking questions about that, the same thing happens as when I have a highly curated point of view walking in the door, we shape it together. I love that. So you move from industry pressure to how the company responds to that in industry pressure to how that company's response creates departmental pressure, how that departmental pressure or challenges creates individual or personal pressure. And I find that reps kind of get this turned around. They try to go in and establish credibility by starting with the personal aspect of selling. I'm not saying a personal aspect isn't important, but you earn it. You earn it from the industry to the company, to the department. You earn the right to talk about personal pressure. But a lot of people just go in and try to establish personal relationships. And, and uh, in today's environment, it's just, uh, uh, it's going to be a tough one. Agree. Okay, you know, this, so, this, so far, Doug, I'm sorry, buddy. You had something to say. I was just going to say, you know, that there's a whole long list of, of other things, you know, that, uh, you know, a, a seller should be looking for, you know, everything from getting specific around the products they use and how they're organized. But there's one thing in particular I find very intriguing, which is, oh, I should say two things, but one is their financial condition, right? Are they growing? Are they flat? Are mm -hmm. they shrinking? Mm -hmm. And the other one is their competitive position within their industry. Are they the number one leader? Are they number two or three and they're hungry? Were they two before and now they're five? You know, the trajectory of a business will tell you a lot about that organization and then help you to go find the right people to attach to. Because if this company is on a slide, you're going to want to find someone who's interested in saving it. If the company's, you know, on a tear and rising up the ranks of their competitive uh, chart there, uh, you're going to want to find the people who've been making that happen. That's a really good point. So, so far we talked about like we have to get a deep understanding of the customer's business. To your point with the Boston Scientific CEO, we have to align to the customer's goals and strategies. But now, you know, how do I align 
my solution to show real business impact. I come in with a compelling viewpoint. I do discovery. But how do I make sure that my solution aligns to the customer's goals and strategies? Is there any, you know, coaching you could give the audience on that? I think one of the easiest ways to do this, uh, and it's something that we've been teaching sellers for a couple of decades, is when you lay it out in a very simple framework like the value pyramid, that allows you to draw a line from the mission and strategy of a company all the way down through the organization, through the layers to help you identify the initiatives that are supporting those strategies, the projects that are then made up of those initiatives, and the challenges that those projects are designed to, to solve. And when you get towards the bottom of that value pyramid, sometimes you might need help as a seller because, you know, hey, specifically, how do we do this? And, you know, what's our unique differentiator here? You know, a lot of that stuff you might need some help with. But when you can lay it out and you can draw a line all the way from your product capability to the challenge the customer has up to the project that they have where you're influencing the criteria, hopefully, uh, to the initiative and the, the company strategy, you bring it back up so that you can have the conversation there. And I think that value pyramid framework is often sort of misguided in how we teach it. Some people think it's how you do an account plan. And other people, you know, it's what they sit down with their champion and they walk them through and get the buy-in on. Do I have it right? Mm. Do you see how this, you know, challenge here is affecting this strategy? And we have this capability that can help you. When you can connect those dots, that's when the magic happens. What happens, Doug? Two scenarios I want to throw by both you guys. Um, one is we're asking questions to somebody that cannot answer the business impact and the strategic alignment questions. I want you to kind of run us through that scenario. And the second scenario, and I'll remind us uh, when we get to it again, but the second scenario is you're talking to somebody who you know understands it, but they are unwilling to share it with you or to participate with you in that conversation. First one, let's handle this one. Um, they're unaware. What do you do? Well, I always lean back on sort of the discovery skill that we we've developed and we just ask people about i mean if you think about the the most basic bva interview starts with you know understand tell me a little bit about your job what do you do where do you spend the vast majority of your time and from there we just start discovering this is you know back to swinging the axe and and picking away at this well i spend a lot of time uh you know um building data models or, you know, spinning up clusters and, and processing data. And I'm trying to clean that data so that it can be used by our data science team or something. You, you find out, you just walk down through the day in the life and you understand along that journey, there are going to be some questions that you can ask. So you have to be listening. You know, that old adage of two ears, one mouth is really important mm -hmm. in doing that discovery because every single interview I've ever had Someone gives you a nugget and it's up to you as to whether or not you listen to it and respond to it. So I, so I think when, when the customer doesn't know what the challenge is, just ask them about their job and ask them about the processes they support and what's working, what's not working. If it could be different, how would you like it to be different? And you will find something along that way. I love that. I find that um, this is a really important point. Because a lot of people teach people, if you're asking people business value questions and they can't answer the business value questions, then you're not with the right people. You need to move on and get to others inside the organization. And I found some of the greatest sellers that I've ever met are the ones, you know, especially in technical sales. Uh, sometimes the customer has lost their own emotional connection to what they do matters to the business. So they're so deep into it. And then the great sellers are the ones that can connect people emotionally to what they do matter. So we can talk about the technical problems and challenges and remind people of the why, why how that's impacting the customer, how that's impacting, you know, the business side of the equation or what have you. And I find that um, 
I guess my advice is don't be quick to step over somebody because you could have somebody with power and influence that you're speaking to, but they've just lost their own emotional connection to what they do matters. Does that make sense? Yeah. But I think Doug really hit on it. If you're asking about the process and you're trying to understand who are the people in the process also, if you find that one person can't give you the information, you now have a set of other people that are in that process that you're going to have to speak to anyway. And one of those people might be your potential champion and give you that information. I like that. Okay, guys, let's check the other one. Now we're speaking to somebody that we know should have the answers to these um, uh, business impact questions, strategic alignment, um, a lot of the stuff that's in the, you know, a business value assessment, but they are hesitant. They are holding back. They are not sharing in the conversation. What do you do with that, Doug? Well, it's uh, it depends on what it is you're looking for. If it's a metric, for example, I think this is the one thing that reps ask me all the time is, hey, how do I get that metric? They're not giving me the metric. So I try to make it really easy for people. Hey, how many times do you do you uh, process? You know, how many hours does it take for you to process that data model? The answer oftentimes comes back. Well, it depends. Great. So they don't have the answer. That's the first part. If they have the answer and they give it great. If they don't have the answer or they're unsure, hey, well, if you had to guess, give me a, you know, give me a guess. If they don't want to guess and, and when you're selling a technical product to technical people, they don't generally like to guess. They're very precise. Mm-hmm. But you can give them a range is typically what the next technique I use is. And I make one end of that range a little ridiculous. So if I know it should be like six hours, I might say, well, is it? Is it like five hours or is it 30 hours? And most human beings will have a visceral reaction to that extreme number. Well, it's not 30 hours. Oh, okay. Well, is it, is it closer to five? Well, yeah, it's probably between five and 10. Great. So is it seven and a half? Maybe we should use seven and a half. Would that be fair? And you sort of negotiate value by negotiating a metric and getting that person there. Now, the third technique, if that doesn't work, and that usually works, but not always is I tell a customer story. I said, well, when we were doing this with this other customer, what they told us is that on average, it was about eight hours of time that they, every, every single time they ran one of these jobs. Is that, does that seem reasonable? Could we use that to document this? Would that be fair? And usually at that point, you've broken them down because you've tried it three times. So isn't that the magic number? You got to mm-hmm. ask why three times. You got a lot of other things you got to do three times. So if you try three different ways to get the metric, by the third time you're asking for it, they're typically, okay, well, let's use that as an assumption. We'll ballpark it. We'll note it in there that we used a third-party data point. Great. Let's move on. I really well, love how you did that, Doug. Really love it. Because I, I found that the hardest part of all of this for salespeople is how do I quantify or measure you know, different steps in the process so that I can align my solution and show a true meaningful impact on their business. And that, what you talked about and those techniques are really powerful. I love that. So the challenge is, guys, that the average buyer, first of all, doesn't believe that you have an understanding of their business, that you want to have an understanding of business. They, they think that you're just trying to sell them something. You don't listen very well. <laughs> um, this is the average buyer. So I want to just hit on this a little bit where, you know, you're talking to somebody with power and influence. Let's be more specific. Maybe they say to us, Doug, hey, Doug, you stay in your lane. Your job is to tell me how your product does X, Y and Z. And I'll handle the justification of the product. That's what I do. That's what I do for a living. I'm I'm the potential champion. How do you how do you uh, have a conversation with me that that really allows me to let you lead on this topic? Well, I think in those cases, what I would do is sort of you gotta, especially if you've attempted and you've gotten that pushback. Hey, this is what I do. Right. Get out, get out of my, get out of my yard. You know, we're just here to have a conversation and I want to get what I want. What I try to do is I try to give them what they want. And then along the way, I just ask the questions, you know, 
Here's the, oh, you want to know about this feature of the product? Here's how we do it. Here's what makes us unique about it. Now, why would, why does that matter to you? Would that be useful to you? Does it take you a long time to do this today? If so, how long does that take? See, I can collect the metrics myself, whether or not the individual is going to let me build the business case for them or with them. I can collect it myself. And at a very worst case scenario, I know whether I'm pursuing a problem that's worth solving. That's a great point. You're, um, love that. Uh, you take the, you take the customer, you kind of meet them wherever they are. And I, I like what you're saying. So, you know, what, 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 what we could do is, um, if somebody's fighting us and saying, look, I'll take care of the business justification. I think that's a common one that comes up for me with reps asking me about this, then let them talk about their business justification. Hey, walk me through the last one that you did. Um, what did you like most about the process uh, that you did? What areas gave you problems or challenges and let them talk about it. Um, some reps are being taught today, hey, we don't proceed in our sales process unless we have a signed off BVA. And so it's it's a ridiculous conversation by the seller. They're like, hey, I can't I can't proceed in this conversation if you don't sign off on this. If we don't build a, a business value justification or return on investment, whatever it is, Um so I think that's really, really powerful. It's just, you know, the, the great sellers uh, meet their buyers wherever they are. Does that yeah. make sense? It's a great point. Yeah. Ask them how they're building it. Or even if it's not reflecting on a past experience, but re- how are you building this one? What are the what are the core benefits you're seeking? You know, what are the things you're quantifying? I get that you won't let me in on it to help you build that calculation, maybe even provide the inputs to it, but help me understand what benefits you're calculating. Then the the other thing that I can do is I can provide you along the way with my point of view all the time, because I'm if I'm doing my job, I'm still collecting data in every single interaction I have with the customer. I'm getting confirmation on the current state, on the challenges that that represents to the business and the consequence. I'm understanding what they need and I'm understanding how a metric can improve. I may even try to structure the POC directly to the benefits anticipated in a business case. So that might be the another way to deal with that individual, John, is to say, hey, can you at least help me understand what are the key processes you're measuring in that business case? So I make sure that we can prove them and provide you an improvement metric that you can plug into your business case. Love it. Something that's underlying the discussion we just had for the last five minutes is building trust with people. So sometimes they don't want to give you the information because you haven't built trust with them. And as Johnny said, you have to earn that right. And you have to earn the trust. In your experience, Doug, and watching, you know, lots of salespeople and going through these BVAs, what have you found is the best way that sales reps build trust with decision makers? You know, I, I think I'll go back to the beginnings. You establish yourself as being different, speaking their language, talking about the business and being consultative. And that comes through not only the point of view you bring, but the questions you ask. If you start pushing product, you know, early on, I think you, you instantly lose credibility. Mm Mm-hmm. When I take a call from a potential vendor and there's plenty of them, it's, you know, it's fun being, I'm sure for you guys, right? Fun being a a seller for all these years and leading sales teams and then having people come sell you stuff. And it's unbelievable how fast people move in to start talking about the product. Right. So true. And sometimes on the reverse side of that. Yeah. If you get a really good salesperson that really does ask questions and knows about your business, you know, you're almost because you're an ex-salesperson, you're like a sucker for that salesperson. Absolutely. <laughs> you know Huge what I mean? Appreciate Because I love what the way they're handling me and handling some of my objections and, and they know about my business, you know, I love that. Yeah. So I, so I think when you establish yourself correctly in that way, um, you can actually have a, a balance of power in a sales process where there's mutual respect. Um, I remember a, a fun story back from the BMC days, but it was one of the first BVAs I ever did. Um, 
you know, working with the customer and asking all the right questions and then taking the results and meeting the senior VP of the data center at that time. And by showing him that we understood the challenges and we could go all the way down into the details of the product and the capabilities and the business benefits quantified, um, we differentiated ourselves. And the thing that was funny at the very end of the meeting, that senior VP walks down the table is a big, long conference room. The sales rep from BMC was there. The, I don't remember who it was. The manager, it was Ray Herman. And then the, uh, the area VP was Carlos De La Torre. And I'm sitting past those two guys. This SVP walks past all three of them, hands me his business card and says, could you send me that analysis? That's one of the best I've seen and walks wow. out. Great. And you could see the sales team was like, you know, they were speechless. They couldn't understand like, wait a minute, we've been working with this guy. We've been taking him out to dinner. We've been doing all these things. And someone comes in and connects it all together with the business case. And they thought it was magic. Yeah, so I think it's... Going, go ahead, Johnny. I think it's so powerful as I'm, I'm, I'm just listening to us speak and I can feel the the audience and, and, you know, how difficult it is to get started. And sometimes it's just like jump in, the water's great. So... Even if a customer's starting to push back, what I find is, is that because they weren't prepared, they didn't know that that's what you were going to talk about. And a lot of this has to do with preparation for the call itself, like even an agenda and simple things like, you know, purpose, process, payoff. Here's the purpose of our meeting today. Here's what I'd like to the process. Here's what I'm going to take us through. And the benefit to both of us is X, Y, Z. I find that sometimes people just get frustrated because they don't know where you're going. And a lot of times people say, hey, um, especially if you're asking them questions that you could have got the answer to from somewhere else, or if it was in print, there's another good one. If it's in print, I expect that you've read it. But many times it's just the expectation of how this is gonna go that a seller really gets off on the wrong foot and they're, and, you know, they're ready, they're pressing the customer, they're asking and then people will be like, hey, I thought we were here to talk about software. Um, and so I think it's just, you, you, wherever you are, there you go. Um, but I find, you know, preparation in the beginning, purpose, process, payoff is a pretty good way to prepare yourself. Completely agree, John. And I would, I'd even take it one further. I learned this at BMC. We actually created a slide, which was a customer version of our sales process. And we used it in a first meeting. Right. And the context was very simple. We're going to set the expectation. When we work with customers and we both achieve success, this is what success looks like. And there's about seven steps. Let me walk you through each step. And it gives, it does a couple of things. It sets that expectation. It showed the customer there were multiple off ramps, those go, no go steps. Hey, if we do this, we're going to do this first. And if you don't like it, we can step out. And you show them those go, no goes. But in there, you lay the groundwork. There's a step in there that says, we are going to build a business case together. And then we're going to prove the technology that the business case was designed to solve. So we're going to prove the capabilities that we are going to quantify the value on. So, so you set the expectation. So it's not a surprise when you come to them after three or four or five discovery calls and say, hey, we'd like to go conduct this business value assessment and help you quantify the things you've been telling us about. They can't respond to that and say, oh, you never told us about that. Mm. So setting Love expectations, it. even at the beginning of a sales process, is really, really critical. Yeah. Now, Doug, in all the engagements that you've done, where do you typically see the customer move from, you're the salesperson, I'm the customer, to buying in and engaging with you as almost like a team member? Where do you, is there a typical place you see that? I'm sure you see it early. I'm sure you see it very late. But is there a typical place that you see that in the process? I, I think as a value consultant, what I can tell you is that happens when you kind of show them the logic of a math equation. Mm -hmm. Because they'll talk about the challenge in the challenge terms. Hey, it takes us a long time to do this. But they've not sat down and said, how many times a day or a week do I do it? How long do I typically spend on that? How many people like me also do that here in the company? And when you add all that up, how many hours of time is that? And 
you know, we've had business cases where we just, when we did that and we showed it to them and it was like 30,000 hours. And then that number seems crazy to him. And then we say, yeah, that's equivalent to about 15 people's worth of time. That's when they go, oh, wow. And they start to think about a couple of things. One is, can I show my boss this number? Is this number too big? Mm-hmm. So they yes, might even exactly. say, wow, 30,000. I think that that's really powerful, but I think we should, you know, let's tone it down a little bit. They might say, really, that's it. I think it's even more, you know, but it's that, that moment that magic happens where, where you've taken them sort of describing their environment and giving you metrics and actually getting it to a number. That's when it changes. Because if they, if they respond negatively to that, that'll never fly. Managers will never like it. The execs aren't going to like that. Then you know whether or not you got a champion because that champion wants to see that number. The champion wants to go take it to the exec. They just want it to be right. They want it to feel good. They want it to not upset people with that number, but they want to take it. Now, when you see that number, that seems really high, that 30,000, as you referred to, and they want to, as you said, tap it down. Is that one because they don't want to be look like they're on the lunatic fringe? in this in this business case or is it because they also don't want to be held accountable to you know getting rid of the 30,000 hours I, I think it's both i think the first you know the the not being held accountable part is very real no mm-hmm. question about it yes. anything you put forward and ask for money with more than likely you're going to have to you're going to have to um put up and and show those results but i think the other side of it is they don't want to be they don't want to look like they're a fanboy for the vendor. Right. And I think having some scrutiny put on that, some conservative factors, let's cut it in half, let's reduce it by 20%, um, those things. And then we can always use a customer story to show them more. So you might assume a 20% reduction in, in productivity or improvement in productivity. And we got a customer story or three or four of them that say 40 or 50 or 60%. And that just gives them more confidence that the estimate they've made is conservative. Yeah, and there's also the element of what do I really need to justify this purchase, right? If I need 10,000 hours, then I might go 12,000 or 15, but I'm not going to go 30,000. Yeah, and I've seen plenty of people who they seek to build the most perfect, scientifically correct business case with all the exact metrics, the perfect calculations and all the all everything perfect. And I always say that that is absolutely foolish. We just need to help the customer build the right case for them to go make the changes they want to make. So now, numbers don't have to be scientifically correct. I one time presented a BVA to the head of Unix systems at Verizon with, uh, I remember Anthony Palladino. And, and oh, yeah. during the presentation, I looked in my spreadsheet and guess what? I, the calculation was wrong. I had the wrong formula in the field, but the story was so strong, how we started with their initiatives and all the way down to their challenges and put the numbers together. They completely nodded their heads in agreement on the business case. And we got the deal. Now, when I sent them the spreadsheet after the call, I corrected the formula, but it just goes to show that it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to have, it's got to be the right story. Now, I watched one of your videos where you talked about the best way to explain the results of a BVA is in a very simple way. Don't get caught up in like, you know, too much of the detail. Can you walk us through, you know, what you mean by that? Yeah, I think when I, when I think about sort of uh, the best way to consume this information, um, you know, I start first with sort of the, what is the construct of a business case? Like what's even the definition of a business case? And if you look it up, it's the reasoning for change. So I can't just show you, you know, one slide or one spreadsheet that has a bunch of numbers on it. That actually isn't going to help you make the decision because you don't know what particular problem I'm trying to solve. You don't know how it's connected to what's important in the organization. You're leaving all of that on the, on the viewer. You know, the person you're meeting with is going to have to connect those dots. So when I think about it, you've got to make it simple. And the way that people consume content, in the most simple fashion is a story. And that story has a beginning, a middle and an end. 
And that story has a trajectory. You know, it starts with some basic background information, leads to a complication. There's a crescendo in the story. And, you know, if I was an author or a movie uh, producer, there'd be a hero that comes in and saves the day. And then there's happily ever after, which occurs. If you look at the way authors and screenwriters write stories, it's exactly the way you want to write a business case. And I always tell people that, John, your command of the message framework is the story arc. It's literally what you need to go in with an economic buyer and explain the BVA. This is how we've had great success. We understand your strategic priority is this, but you have these challenges in the way. Those challenges are causing these business problems to occur. What you want is this future state, these capabilities, and you'll get these outcomes if you do it. Now you're lacking these capabilities. Here's how we do it, how we do it better. Here's our proof point. Here's the return you're going to get as a customer. If you set up the context properly and then show the numbers, that's when the ma- that's when the magic happens. So, you know, can you do it on one slide? It's really, really hard to do it on one slide. But could you do it in less than a handful? Yeah, absolutely. You just have yeah. to take them on the journey. Now, do you back that up right after you tell their story? Do you back that up with a customer success story? that had almost the same use case with, you know, the same type of results that you're showing to them? Absolutely. You know, without question, you know, the the thing about that story is that it probably has a great arc and then they see the numbers, but they don't have anything to benchmark those numbers against. Yes. Do I, do I know if this person is on the fringe, as you said, the lunatic case, or are they being reasonable and rational about this analysis? And the way to validate that is to do that with the customer story. The other thing that the customer story does, which is really powerful at that point is, you know, the end of that story, you know, they're going to say to you, you know, you had me at hello. When you started to talk through the business challenge and how we can get better, it's like, oh, you had me at hello. But at the the very end, there's always this risk that the customer feels like, are we going to be the first ones to do this? Have they ever dealt with anybody my size before? Has anybody ever gotten a 50% improvement to productivity? Like that's unfathomable to some people because, you know, they're hiring, whether it's a data engineer or a, you know, a software engineer, they're hiring people like crazy and paying them a lot of money. Really? I can get twice as much out of these people with your software. That doesn't make any sense to me. These people are smart. And so that's when you have to rescue them and you rescue them with the customer story. Hey, yeah, we've done this before. We've done this for someone in your industry. We've done this for someone maybe with the use case. We've specifically delivered value in excess of what we're projecting here. And if you and if you like, I'd be happy to set you up with a conversation with those people. Now, going back to where you said the most important step in the sales process is discovery. Mm-hmm. Is there a certain point where most salespeople go wrong in discovery? Is it that they're just not doing the homework? Is it they're not asking the right questions? Is it they're too anxious to jump to product features and demonstrations? W- what have you seen in your experience? I, I think they go wrong in that discovery phase. The, the reality is, is if I haven't done my research, I might get by for a few dis- discovery calls. I actually might make progress. But what happens in those discovery calls inevitably is that the customer talks about a problem or a challenge and they think they know what they need already. You know, this goes back to that example, like when the customer, when the rep hears the customer say, oh, we've got an APM project. And if that seller has an APM solution, they're like, great, we can help. You want to see a demo? You, You know, they start talking about the product and they forget all about why the customer is doing it. They don't ask those questions. I mean, I've seen this, you know, that rep who hears that they've got an APM project, they go back into the office, they tell their manager, they uncovered an opportunity, they go into Salesforce, they create it. And now there's some fake pipeline in there because we don't know what. So as a sales leader, I used to ask people, great, so they've got an APM project. Why? Why do they have an APM project? And then you just see that, you know, the blank face on the seller. Right. Here in the headlights. They don't know the why. Well, we should find out the why. Let's find out the why. What's driving it? Because in the end, when you find out that why, now, if I did my research, I'd probably know the why. But 
I still have a chance to catch it there in discovery. I still have a chance to catch that. Once I know that why, you know, maybe they're trying to, you know, launch some new products out in the marketplace and drive, drive revenue to double the size of the company. And they need to have a way for their developers to become more productive. Now it makes a lot of sense, but that also might indicate to me some key capabilities that they need that they maybe haven't thought about. And I want to make sure I get the chance to insert our stuff in there to differentiate ourselves. But yeah, it's, I think the biggest mistake is the happy years. Yeah. And when it goes right, what's the rep doing? Just doing a great job in their homework and doing discovery and all the things you talk about, aligning it to the goals and strategies, making sure that you're aligning to true business impact. Is there anything else in there that I'm missing? When you no. say, oh, like this guy always does it right. What do they, a person always does it right. What is it that they're doing right, right from the beginning? I, it, it's, it's really interesting, but when I think about it, it comes down to this, you know, sort of competence level that they have of being conversationally competent around business value. And I don't mean that they know how to calculate the net present value of something, right? I go, I still go to a calculator to do that. You know, I don't, I don't really sit down and, and do it just off the top of my head. What I mean by that is the ability to talk about a business and understand and connect the challenges they're facing that relate to me and my solution back to the customer's business and to do that comfortably. What I mean by comfortably, and, and this goes back to you, John Kaplan, and you know the, the audible ready nature that command of the message is designed to bring is that when I'm competent and I know what the current states are likely to be, and I know what the value drivers are likely to be, when the customer throws me a curveball, I'm comfortable, I'm confident, and we can have a conversation about it. It's when they feel that lack of comfort and understanding all that stuff that they start pushing the product stuff. They start pushing product features and they go down that road because they've been taught that. There's there's lots of programming in most enablement programs around product features, functions, competitive information and all of the like. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with, um, you know, there's just time and a time and a place for it. So what you're, exactly. what I'm summarizing here and what you say is that once I learn what I need to know about them, I've earned the right to make it about me. And when I make it about me, I have to speak in terms that relate it to them. And uh, so it's not, it, you know, it's not, it's not rocket science. Last thing I wanted to ask was like, what is the life cycle of a BVA? Um, we're talking about using it to get the deal. So we get the deal and we're, you know, couple quarters out or what have you a year out i don't know does the bva show up again to help us uh generate a proof point and a great customer testimonial uh what happens with it a great question i think most customers think the bv the bva there is like a stick you're using to beat them into submission to get the yeah. And I've made sure that when we build the programs and we message this stuff, right, a great seller will message this as we're going to help you build this, which is going to provide a baseline to your business. So we want to first create the baseline about how you're doing today, the processes and, and the outcomes that you're receiving today. We're going to forecast what those are going to be with a business case, which we will prove out in a proof of concept. But then once you become a customer, this baseline is something that we're going to come back and we're going to measure again and again and again. And this is where the customer starts to see, this is back to you, John, your question, sort of when does the magic happen? This is another one of those times when they say, wow, really? So you're going to, you're not just going to put these crazy numbers up here, get me to buy something then, and then leave me, leave me hanging. This actually, so in the companies that I've been part of, not only do we come back and we measure that value. But what happens in between there, between the sale and that expansion that occurs is the customer success team that takes on the customer who has to onboard that customer. They need this data too. That's what such a great point. Great you know, what, point. What outcomes are they trying to realize? You know, they're not just installing the software. They're not just onboarding the customer going through the checklist. It's got to first start with what's the problem they're trying to solve. 
What's the strategy? How's important? How important is it to the organization? What metrics are we going to help them measure? And when you can integrate this pre-sale value experience into the post-sale value experience, you know, I've always said sort of value is the red thread. You know, it starts from the very beginning as to, you know, my very first call to the customer all the way through the closing of a deal, the onboarding of a deal, the expansion of the customer. It becomes, it's something that's just there all the time. Now, I want to touch on something else that we, we left out is you do the BVA, do everything excellent. You got buy-in, you meet with the CFO, the CIO, whoever the buyer is, the top buyer. Now you send it to purchasing. Purchasing looks at your price of a couple million dollars and says, I need a 80% discount, right? And then they start calling all your competitors and try to get that same price. Talk to us a little bit about the power that you have in your hands when you've met with the top people in the account and you've done a BVA successfully. I think in the, in the best scenarios, literally the champion will get on the phone. They'll invite us to the call with procurement and the champion will be explaining a couple of critical points. The first one is the uniqueness of our solution. You know, we can't discount the importance of our unique differentiators and the customer's ability to understand them. So the champion is there defending that this solution is not a commodity. In fact, in our situation, and we've worked very diligently on this, we need this, this, and this capability, and no one else has it. So that first part is really critical in that conversation. The second part is we've validated the numbers. So the, so another piece of magic. You do the business case before the proof of concept and you build it in a way that it aligns with the POC success criteria and it measures one to three outcomes that are assumed in the business case. And what you get from that is then the business case becomes real. So now that procurement person has to, you know, digest the differences and the uniqueness that the champion is defending and the fact that we already proved the value to be true. If you want to go with one of these other solutions, you know, you're free to do that. But mind you, they have not proven the ability to do that. And they don't have these capabilities. And you just might lose out. And if it's really important to the company, while procurement has a mission and they want to save money for the organization, they also don't want to be the one that uh, made them go in a different direction and cause that strategic priority or, or initiative to fail. Yeah. I've also seen where a lot of companies, especially the larger ones do what I call separation of church and state. So once that the documents hit purchasing and purchasing is now in charge, especially when it's in the multi-million dollar deal stage, they tell the business, you got to, they put a gag order on them and tell them you can't speak to the vendor anymore. Right there, that's where salespeople should have, if you've done your job and you've done it as well as Doug has explained it, that's when you should have the confidence to wait them out. Because eventually purchasing will talk to the champion and the champion will tell purchasing, look, this this is the company that we have to go with and here's all the reasons why. Don't be quick to start discounting your product just because purchasing is hammering you over the head and telling the competition that they can get in there also. You have to have a little bit of little bit of patience. Yeah. I you know, this is when you build the BVA and the findings of the BVA, it becomes really important. There's a couple of there's probably three critical sections that I include that I I've not seen everybody do. The first one is a list of all the people you met. So in the case there John where my champion's gone, I can't talk to them, they can't talk to procurement, they're mm-hmm. not allowed to converse. I'm going to give the procurement the BVA that we did. They're going to see the dates that we met, the 27 people. I'll never forget that I met the day the the U.S. shut down for COVID. I was out at Amgen in, in Thousand Oaks, California, and we met 27 people that day. I put every one of their names and titles and the departments they were in in the BVA. Hmm. That's the first thing. So now procurement knows, okay, this isn't, they didn't just cook this up with the champion. It's not just their average everyday ROI model that they're going to, 
put our data in and try to spit out a crazy number. They got this data from 27 people. I think that's really important. The second thing is I had a slide in there that had about a dozen quotes of what people said. So qualitative statements about the current state or about the solution that we were representing that they had had a chance to use. And then the third thing is when you discover pain in the organization, when someone talks about even on Datadog now, you know, it's about outages and things like that. So when someone says, oh, well, we troubleshoot an outage, it takes us a long time. I do what you suggested earlier, John Kaplan, which is, hey, tell me about that last outage you had, last big outage, walk me through that. And I did it one time, I'll never forget, at BMC, we did it with Morgan Stanley. The trading system was down. Well, you can imagine the trading system down at Morgan Stanley is a big deal. But we asked this person to walk us through how many people, how long, what did it look like? Before we knew it, we understood that there were 76 applications that made up the trading system and that those 76 applications had multiple people associated with each from the developers to the database people, all of them to the business owner. And that these calls, these war room calls had 500 people on them. Wow. So then we understood. So, so I made a slide that would highlight that incident and it's the punch in the gut. So now you're the procurement person. You, we see the people you've met. We see the, you know, the incident, the quotes of what they said, we see this real world incident. You almost become scared. You don't want to be the one that said no to this vendor. Right. And, and that's when you tr develop as a procurement person, you develop a partnership with the vendor and say, Hey, can you work with me on a few areas here? And then we can get this done. Right. And I'm all for that. And it's where you totally differentiated yourself as an, as a salesperson, right? Completely. Doug, in this conversation, what did we miss? Oh, and I think Johnny's got something he wants to talk to you about. Go ahead, John. Oh yeah. So for me, the last mile of this conversation is, um, uh, bringing the BVA back into play after the software is installed, after where well, your solution is installed and using it to create champions for life. I call it the champion letter, you know, sending a, it's that, you know, it's the last mile sending that communication to the economic buyer and saying, Hey, by the way, um, I just want to thank you for giving us access to such great people. Uh, you know, they, implemented this plan and here is what it actually did. And you send that to the economic buyer and I've never, ever seen that formula equal failure. You have champions for life. So typically what they do is they take that note from you or whatever is it that you sent and they send it back to the team and say, Hey, congratulations. Thanks for, you know, being a part of our strategic initiative or what have you. And again, just how you sell uh, can differentiate you as sometimes as much as what you sell. Completely agree. So I'll go back to the, you know, how we started this, which was, you know, why do salespeople or why should salespeople think about doing this part of the process? And I talked about the numbers as they relate to them. You know, it's uh, average order size goes up, the sales cycle shorter, my win rate increases, all good things, all things that affect my ability to attain quota and earn income. But what you just call out, John, is that it absolutely changes the relationship with the customer. When you're selling a technical product, it's really hard at times because you're so focused on the user as the target. And that executive, that CIO, the COO of that company is really hard to access because they're not going to put their hands on the keys of your product. But the second you bring them a message that is something that they can understand easily and has business impact and it's aligned to the things they care about, it changes the relationship. So to finish the story at Amgen with the 27 interviews, the quotes and the real example, we eventually got to meet the CIO, which while they had been an existing customer for us, we had never met them before, but it was the BVA that came. The first part of it was a value realization to show them all the value they got and how it aligned to the strategy. And it was because of that, that we actually got the meeting with the CIO. So now you're on there, the CIO is meeting our CEO and all these great things are happening completely changed. And as you said, champions forever. Um, really, really important to do this stuff. Um, 
And, and if you do it right, yeah, it might slow you down just a little bit. But if you consider the bigger deal, the faster cycle, and the more, you know, the greater win rate, it's worth the time. Certainly is. Doug, did we uh, leave anything out? Oh, I mean, I'm sure we could talk about this for hours, but no, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I think for sellers, be open to this. And for, you know, and, and for sales leaders, inspect it. You got to ask the questions. When the rep walks in with the happy ears on a project, it's fine to sort of pat them on the back. Nice job. Why, why do they have this project going on? Like you're as a, as a sales leader, you should be really inspecting these opportunities through a value lens. Mm-hmm. Why is this important to them? What value and return are they going to get on this? Have we set this up so that we can prove it out and defend ourselves? Can we protect ourselves against procurement? You know, all the things that we talked about here, a lot of it comes down to, you know, the sales rep has to do it, but the sales leader needs to make sure that they're doing it and inspect that. Yeah, that's the red thread you talked about throughout the entire process. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Johnny, anything else from you? No, it's fantastic. This it is a uh, this is a Unlike. gift that unbelievable. I'm given. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I'm sitting. I'm sitting like this is like the Mount Rushmore here of enterprise sales, and I'm looking at. So, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's an honor. You did an unbelievable job, Doug. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. Yeah. Thanks to Doug May, my co-host John Kaplan. And thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. Forcemanagement.com.